lives afresh to him this morning to uh, just to come to the foot of the cross. And I don't know where you've been this week and maybe you feel that, that your sins are, are too great for God, are too big for God, that where you've been, where your thoughts have been, what you've looked at, where you've, where you've been, what you've thought, what you've done, what you've said, that they are too deep, they're too big, they're too great for God to forgive you again. Or maybe you've never experienced that forgiveness and this morning you just feel that you're too, too far beyond God's love, too far beyond the love of God. And maybe this morning you just feel as a Christian uh, a failure, that you know that you've screwed up this week or you screwed up in the past. And maybe those, those accusations from Satan come back to haunt you again of, of failures in the past. I just want you to just sense God is saying to us this morning that we just come once again to the foot of the cross and remember that love that ran red, that the blood of Christ that cleanses us not just from a little bit of sin, not just from some of our sins, not just from our existing sins, but from all our sin, past, present and future. And at this morning, if you've trusted in Jesus, then your sins are gone. And you might feel a mess, you might feel a failure, but this morning Jesus wants you to know that he's already done it. His love ran red and your sin washed white, whiter than the snow, cleansed, clean, forgiven forever. Receive that and be encouraged by that. And hear that from Jesus this morning, that your love, that his love has run red and your sins have been washed white. And if you've yet to experience that forgiveness, if you've yet to experience the grace of God, then, then right now receive that. Jesus has paid it all. He dealt with your sin. And this morning he offers you forgiveness. Just pray. Father, we thank you for the love of Jesus. We thank you that Jesus has paid it all, that his love ran red, that his blood was shed there on the cross. Our sins have been dealt with once and for all, past, present and future. We thank you that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I pray for anyone here this morning who is struggling with condemnation, with struggling with those, uh, that sense of accusation from the enemy, that they would embrace and celebrate the forgiveness, that washing of Jesus, that cleansing of sin pray this in Jesus name amen I wonder what you think the greatest need is in the world today as you maybe flicked your TV on this morning or, or last night whatever maybe picked up the newspaper this morning what do you think the, the greatest need is in the world today maybe you think it's for England to be able to score some more goals in football that, 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 that's a, a significant one you might say that it's education you might say that it's healthcare. You might think that it's poverty relief or, or human rights. And all of those things are good. You might also think, well, you know, in, in, in different parts of the world, the needs do vary, and for different people, the needs vary as well. The orphan in a slum has very different needs from an elderly person who's all alone. An abused wife has very different needs from uh, a refugee. All of these people have different needs, and perhaps depending where they are in the world will depend on the kind of needs that they have. You know, the one single need that all people have everywhere in common and their greatest need is their need for a saviour, is their need for Jesus. That need for Jesus, that need for a saviour far outweighs anything else. Max Licado has said these words, if our greatest need had been for information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. 
If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. But since our greatest need was forgiveness, God sent us a saviour. People need Jesus more than education, more than human rights, more than wealth, more than clean water, even more than food, because all of those things, massively important though they all are, all of those things are temporary, and all of them can be met by other human beings, but the need for a saviour, the need for Jesus, is eternal. And only God can meet that deepest and most significant and most important of all needs. And we need to be really careful that as Christians we don't get sucked in to the idea that people's greatest need is education. That's what our government, that's what our kind of culture says. Education, education, that's everybody's greatest need. It isn't. The greatest need isn't poverty relief or whatever else. Those things are important, but it's not the greatest thing. Hugely important though those things are, the greatest need that this world has is a saviour. The greatest need that we have is to know Jesus. And we need to, sure, we need to make sure that we stay focused on that as uh, followers of Jesus. The book of Acts was written by Luke and it's the record of the first 30 years or so of the early church from about 33 AD onwards. And it records the actions, the acts of the apostles, the early leaders of the church. And at the heart of the message of Luke in Acts is the all-important nature of what we call the gospel, that package of good news about Jesus that we can be forgiven, we can have eternal life, we can be made right with God. And Luke records for us what the gospel is he records what the gospel does and he records how the church, the early church, defended the truth of the gospel, what it was and what it wasn't. And in today's passage, which we're looking at, which is Acts 16, 16 to 40, Luke chooses to focus on three different people. There's all sorts of people and situations he could have focused on, but he focuses on them for a very specific reason. Because he wants to show us how these three different people needed Jesus, how they encountered Jesus, and how they responded to Jesus. And this part of Acts runs from uh, Acts 16, verse 11, right the way to the end of Acts 16. And it covers how Paul and how his apostolic team are there in the city of Philippi, which is in what is now modern-day Greece, northern Greece. And Luke, who at this point was uh, with Paul, he focuses on these three people. A business lady called Lydia, an entrepreneur, a successful woman called Lydia, an unnamed slave girl who was possessed by an evil spirit, by a demon, and a Roman jailer, probably a retired Roman soldier. So we're going to read from Acts 16, verses 11 to 40. Rob dealt with 11 to 15 last week, but just for the context and the setting, we're going to read that same passage again this week. So if you've got a Bible you want to turn with me to Acts 16, we're going to read from verse 11 right the way to the end of the chapter. Paul and his team have arrived in Philippi and Luke is focusing on these three people for a specific reason to show us some, some key things. So Acts 16 verse 11. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace and the next day on to Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, 
These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet to the stocks, or in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set the meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No! Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. Here are some pictures which are going to be up there for you. This is the river by Philippi. This is where the place of prayer was. So as we read in that passage this morning, we read about them going to the, the place of prayer by the river. This is the river, and the, this place of prayer would have been just along these riverbanks somewhere there in Philippi. You can visit that still today. Here's the marketplace. This is all that's left of it, but this is where Paul and Silas were taken, and in this kind of sham trial, ended up being flogged, severely flogged by rods, and then carted off into the jail. And here's a picture of the jail. This is the inner jail, this room. This is where Paul and Silas is believed would have been kept. This is the inner room within the wider jail complex where Paul and Silas were, were chained up and put in their legs put in stocks, spread apart to kind of increase the pain. There's a few pictures for you just to kind of set the context of this place, of, this, of these uh, events in Acts. Now Lydia was a religious person and she was doing well in life from a financial point of view. But Lydia still needed Jesus. She had a very specific kind of lifestyle, but she needed Jesus. Look what happens in her, or, or, or what happens to her in Acts 16, verse 14. Paul preaches about Jesus to her, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Lydia heard the good news about Jesus, and she responded, and she gave her life to Jesus. And she became a key person in what became known as the church 
in Philippi. The second person was this slave girl who was possessed by an evil spirit, by a demon. And we're going to look at her story a little bit later on in more detail. But now let's look at verse 18 where she's shouting at Paul and his team. Luke says she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. She was a slave girl, probably fairly young, and her life was utterly consumed by this demonic presence in her life. But as she encounters Paul and his team, she's set free from her demonic possession and oppression through and in the power of Jesus, through the name of Jesus. Now Luke doesn't say, but we can, I think, assume that having been set free from demonic possession by the power of Jesus, she then went on to become a follower of Jesus and also became a part of this church alongside Lydia. The third person in this section is a a hard, a brutal Roman soldier, probably a retired centurion, somebody used to putting people to death, used to flogging people, a a, a hard, bitten man. But as he encounters God through Paul and Silas and through this earthquake, he knows that he needs a saviour. This man knows that he needs a saviour, that he has a real need. And so this jailer trusted in Jesus and his whole household trusted in Jesus as they uh, listened to Paul and his team. And the the whole household get baptised that very night. Fantastic. Luke says this, the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Three very different people with very different backgrounds, with very different human needs, completely different situations. And yet their greatest need was a saviour. They needed the gospel and they needed Jesus. And Luke has deliberately chosen to record these three people. There are other people who get saved in Philippi, but he doesn't focus on them. He focuses on these three people. He's deliberately chosen them because he wants us to understand, I think, some key things. These three people are united by their common need of Jesus and by their acceptance of Jesus as their saviour. They're very different people, utterly different backgrounds and lifestyles and so on. And where they were at with God was all completely different. Three people who, humanly speaking, had almost nothing in common. They would have been been unlikely to have ever interacted with each other, even though they lived in the same city. Yet they found themselves united in Jesus and part of the same church. When Paul and Silas were set free, we read that after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. This was the beginning of the church in Philippi. It was a newly planted church and Lydia was part of it and the slave girl was part of it and the jailer was part of it along with others who had trusted in Jesus even though Luke has decided not to record their stories. And it's a really, really mixed group of people. Where else would you get Paul, an ex-Jewish fanatic who used to murder Christians and, and seize Christians and put them in prison for fun alongside mixing with a rich Gentile woman a woman he'd have had nothing to do with ordinarily, a woman who traded in fabric, sitting next to a slave girl who had been possessed by a demon for many years, alongside a Roman soldier who'd punished and killed people for a living. In what other situation in life would you get a group of people like this and others coming together and sitting together and being together? You wouldn't, would you? It could only happen in a church because a church is a group of people who... although they might be disparate and eclectic mix of people, have come together and are united in Jesus. They've been saved by Jesus. They have that common need of a saviour. 
and they've come together through Jesus. They might have nothing else in common, but they have Jesus in common and they've been saved by Jesus. When Paul wrote his famous letter to the church in Philippi, and remember when, when you read Philippians, the people he's writing to are these very people and others, but these, these three people that we, that we see, they're the folks that are reading this letter, who get this letter from Paul years later. And when Paul writes, he says these words in, in, his, in the opening words in the letter of Philippians. He says, to all the saints, that just means uh, God's holy people, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. They'd come together because of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And now that they're devoted to spreading the gospel and working in partnership, doing whatever they can to help Paul as he spreads the gospel. And they, in turn, are spreading the gospel in Philippi as this church in Philippians grows, in Philippi grows. And Luke's, Luke wants us to see in this passage, he wants us to see that mankind's greatest need is the gospel because it's in the gospel that we encounter Jesus and we are saved. And there are three things that I think Luke wants us to see in this passage. Firstly, write this down on your outline on the back of your bulletin. Firstly this, that there is life-changing power in the gospel. There is life-changing power. Nothing else can transform lives in the way that the gospel transforms lives. Education is good, but it will not change a person's life. If anything, education makes a person more proud and further away from God. Education won't change a person's life for eternity, neither with health care, neither with clean water. It's good, it's important for the here and now. But only the gospel can truly transform a person's life for eternity. Because the gospel is, is the means by which a person receives forgiveness, is made right with God, is saved from an eternity in hell, and has eternity with Jesus. Paul wrote these words. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, of the good news about Jesus, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, says Paul. This message, this package of good news, is life-transforming. It is radical, and it transforms people's lives. And when a person trusts in Jesus as Saviour, the effects of the gospel begin to see or to be seen in every area of a person's life as it transforms how they think and how they behave. And the effects and the power of the gospel begin to change that person's life. I wonder if you're ashamed of the gospel this morning. I wonder if you're ashamed of the gospel. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. I wonder how I, how you, how do we react when somebody asks us about the gospel, about Jesus? Are we ashamed of the gospel? Or are we like Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because this is the one true life-changing thing that exists on this planet. And when you have the Holy Spirit in your life, when you become a new person, when you've surrendered your life to Jesus, then it should progressively change everything about us, including our desire to tell others about Jesus. The second thing I, want Luke, I think Luke wants us to see is that the gospel can save anyone. Write that down. The gospel can save absolutely anybody. And we might not have been surprised that Lydia became a Christian. She was already a seeker. She was a worshipper of God. She was uh, probably a Jewish convert, a, a Gentile who'd been converted to Judaism. She was there. If there'd been a church, Lydia would have been there checking out what was going on. She was a seeker. She was there on the fringes. But the girl who was possessed by a demon is a little bit less obvious, isn't it? I guess if we met her today, we'd probably think she was beyond help. She'd be medicated. She'd probably be put in, into uh, health care. We would be writing her off. We would be thinking, well, that person's never going to trust in Jesus. 
we met a man like the Roman jailer, we'd think he'd be the last person that would ever be interested in the gospel. But Luke has put these three people in this passage for us to see that everybody needs the gospel and everybody can be saved by the gospel. And everybody can be changed by the gospel. And you might be looking at people in your life, maybe in your family, maybe people that you work with, people in your street, people that you know, and you're wondering how on earth could this person ever become a Christian? You look at them and you think, surely this person, if anybody is beyond the gospel, this person is. I can't see how Jesus is ever going to save that person. Maybe it seems like they're so far from God or so uninterested that you could never imagine them trusting in Jesus. I guess if we'd met the slave girl and the jailer, that we'd have thought the same thing. A woman possessed by a demon, heavily involved in the, in the occult, and an ex-squatty who flogs people for a living. But when God moves in their lives, and when they encounter the gospel, it changes them forever. Because the gospel transforms lives, and it changes people forever. So I want to encourage you today that there is nobody who is beyond the power of the gospel. And you might be looking at people and you think, I'm going to pray for that person or pray for that person because I can imagine them getting saved because they're nice people. And if anyone's going to become a Christian, surely they are. Do you know what? It's often the nice people who never quite get around to getting saved because the the more self-righteous we are, the the better we are, the, the prouder we are. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And it's often the people who are the furthest away from the cross, so it seems to us, that end up finding themselves at the foot of the cross and encountering Jesus. I want to encourage you this morning to keep on sharing the gospel with those people because there is nobody beyond your help. There's nobody beyond the power and help of the gospel. Nobody is beyond the reach and power of the gospel. Just pause and, and just pray for a moment. I want you just to imagine or, or just to, to think of that person in your mind, just to close our eyes and to think of that one person you think, I'd love to see them saved because everybody needs saving. But I can't imagine that person ever getting saved. I can't imagine how they're going to be saved. And just right now to pray for that person, to bring them to Jesus and ask them to, and, and, and ask Jesus through the power of his spirit to convict that person, to save that person. Just do that right now. The third thing I think Luke wants us to see is how the gospel, write this down, how the gospel brings unity. These three people would never have found themselves in the same room if it wasn't for Jesus. And most of us, do you know what? Most of us would never be here this morning sitting next to each other in Regent Chapel this morning if it wasn't for Jesus. We are a very, very group of people. And if it wasn't for the gospel, most of us would never have met each other and we wouldn't be sitting here this morning. We've got very little in common with each other perhaps. But one of the greatest adverts for the power of the gospel is the fact that we're a group of people from different races, different skin colors, different nationalities, different educational backgrounds, different occupations, family backgrounds, family situations, all sorts of people here this morning from all sorts of kind of backgrounds. And yet here we are, and as the hymn says, once strangers chasing selfish dreams, now one through grace alone. That's what the gospel does. Once we were strangers chasing selfish dreams, yet now we're united, one through grace alone. The gospel, this package of good news about Jesus dying on the cross in our place so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life, is everybody's greatest need. 
And it may be today that you've yet to surrender your life to Jesus. Maybe this morning you've not come to that place. And as you look at this passage, maybe you identify with one of these three people. Maybe you don't. Well, regardless of your situation, if you've yet to surrender your life to Jesus, whether you are 12 or 82 or anything in between, then you need to do that. Can I encourage you? Can I challenge you? Can I implore you to come to the foot of the cross to put your trust in Jesus? Your greatest need is the gospel, the good news about Jesus. You need a saviour. It's more important than your education, than your job, than your health, your human rights, or whatever else it might be. The jailer who'd been given the task of locking Paul and Silas up, it's highly likely that he'd heard what Paul and Silas had been saying and what they'd done for the, uh, for the slave girl. But look at verse 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. The jailer fell asleep on duty. He should have been guarding them. He had his sword ready. He was tooled up, ready to go. And he falls asleep. And he wakes up with this earthquake and all of the uh, prisoners, that, that, that the chains have come loose and they're all ready to go. And he panics and he's, he draws his sword and he's about to kill himself. Paul called out and told him not to harm himself. And this combination of what he'd heard Paul and Silas preaching, what he'd seen been going on, and this sense of God had really just moved through this earthquake causes him to, to realize he needs to get right with God. Whoever God is, whatever this looks like, whatever this means, he knows he needs to get right with God. And he causes him to cry out, wanting to get his life right with God. And so we read, the jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This hardened soldier knew that his greatest need was a saviour. And so he asked how he could be saved. How could he get right with God? How could he escape God's wrath? What was Paul's response? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. Paul told them, told firstly the jailer, then his whole household, that he needed to believe in Jesus. And then he went on to elaborate on exactly what that meant. Luke says, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. In other words, they spelled out exactly what it means to believe in Jesus. It's not sufficient to say to someone, you just need to believe in Jesus. What does that actually mean? To believe that, that he not only died for our sins and rose again, but also that every person needs to turn away from their sin and surrender their life to Jesus and make him the Lord of their life. You know, the demons believe in Jesus and tremble, the Bible says. Belief in Jesus isn't enough. We need to know what that actually means. And Paul does that and he unpacks that. And the fantastic thing in this instance is that the jailer gets uh, saved. He becomes a Christian. He becomes a follower of Jesus. And his whole household, listen, they hear too and they all get saved. Fantastic. And then they want to publicly demonstrate this new faith by getting baptized. They do that straight away. And the likelihood is that they get baptized in the same source of water that uh, the jailer had used to wash the wounds clean. Paul and Silas, probably the well in the, in the kind of prison courtyard. You know, this morning, I just want to encourage you, if you've yet to surrender your life to Jesus, then, to, then I want to encourage you to do that today. To come like that jailer and say, I need Jesus. What must I do to be saved? I need to believe in the Lord Jesus. Not just to believe about him or that he existed, but to believe that he died for my sins and that I need to trust in him and surrender my life to him. And then to get baptized, that's what these men did and his whole household as they believed to surrender their lives to Jesus, to be baptized, 
to publicly demonstrate to all that I have become a follower of Jesus. I encourage you to do that. If you haven't become a Christian yet, to, to do just that. If you have become a Christian and you've yet to be baptized, then you need to do that. To step out and publicly declare that. Wouldn't that be fantastic? I want us to look briefly at the slave girl before we finish today. Luke says this, Once when we were going to the place, the, the, the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl was possessed by an evil spirit, by a demon. And she predicted the future, made a whole lot of money for her slave owners. Terrible when you think the way they were abusing her and misusing this girl. Now, it's important for us to realize that this is real. Okay? This is not some trick. Undoubtedly, most mediums and psychics and fortune-tellers are fakes and scammers. That's true. But some are not. And this girl was not. The evil spirit, the demonic force that possessed her, this is real, and it's, and it's real, it's the real deal. And we need to realize that this kind of thing was real and still is real. This happens and is happening around us. Satan is real, demons are real, evil spirits are real, and they have real power. And some people today that we will come across will be possessed by demons. Now, we don't need to fear demons. If we have the Holy Spirit within us, if, we're, if we've trusted in Jesus, then we all have God's Spirit within us. We don't need to fear demons. We need to deal with them just as Paul did. Just c- command them to go, to take command of the situation in the name of Jesus. We have nothing to fear, but we do have to recognize that demonic powers are real and they are dangerous. And it's really important that we have absolutely nothing to do with the powers of darkness with what we sometimes call the occult, whether that's star signs or mediums or Ouija boards or clairvoyance, psychics, even movies and books that have these kind of things in, have nothing to do with them. Have absolutely nothing to do with them. Don't be conned by the innocence of these things. If we play around with these things, then we open ourselves up to all sorts of uh, demonic powers and that can affect even Christians. And I've seen the damage that that can do even to Christians. This poor slave girl was possessed by an evil spirit. And Luke says this, This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now at first glance you might think she's doing a good thing. What she's saying is true. And that she might even be helping Paul and Silas. But actually what's happening is typical of satanic power. One of the names of Satan in the Bible is the deceiver. And that's exactly what this evil spirit is doing on behalf of his master Satan. He's trying to deceive people. The title Most High God that she uses was actually a term used by Greek-speaking people, which is what she was, and it was used to refer to whatever their top god was. They were pagan people in the Roman Empire who worshipped a whole load of different gods and idols. And this term was used to describe the top god of any particular town or city or area. And by using this title, what might seem a good title to us, actually this title, the, the, the evil spirit in her was confusing people around her because it was giving people the impression that would be listening to Paul and Silas and everybody that uh, was around them that they were linked with and involved in the same kind of pagan idolatry that everybody else was. So when people heard the title Servants of the Most High God they would have immediately thought of Zeus or whatever uh, chief kind of god with a small g that they happened to believe in. Where in fact actually Paul and Silas believed in the very opposite of this. They were trying to pull people and, and, and call people away from worshipping these false idols to worshipping the true God, the one God, the only God, the God of the Bible. But Satan working through this evil spirit would obviously want the people to keep believing in their false gods because the Bible teaches that Satan is behind all false gods and every god is false that isn't the God of the Bible. Satan is the deceiver and he wants to draw people away 
from worshipping the one true God. And he does that through lying. And this uh, girl, the, the, the slave girl, said that Paul and Silas were telling people, telling them the way to be saved. The Greek literally actually is a way to be saved. And a point, the point again is that the evil spirit was being really clever. Everybody in that culture would have been heavily involved in pagan idolatry and the occult. Everybody was seeking salvation. They wanted to be saved, but salvation to them meant something different to what salvation meant to Paul and Silas. The salvation the Bible talks about, salvation that we think of. Salvation to them meant avoiding bad things. It meant avoiding death. It meant uh, getting a good life and health and wealth and prosperity. It didn't mean what the Bible defines as salvation. Being saved from God's wrath against our sin through eternal punishment in what the Bible calls hell. So these statements by this evil spirit through this girl were very close to the truth, but they were deeply misleading. They were very close to the truth, but deeply misleading. And the people who heard her would have thought that Paul and Silas were just part of this kind of morass of people deliberately uh, teaching pagan superstitions because this girl was deliberately confusing the situation, or the spirit was. So Luke says this, she kept this up for many days and finally Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. What this demon through this girl was doing was deceiving people and confusing them and leading them away from the truth of the gospel ever so subtly. And that's what Satan does. And he does that today. He infiltrates churches And he teaches false teachings, false things that are very similar to the truth, but they're not the truth. But they're close enough to the truth for people to be confused and drawn away from the truth, even without realizing it. All sorts of false cults and false Bible teachers use Christian terminology. They might talk about being saved or being saved by faith in Jesus, but we should never assume that another person means what we mean when we we use biblical terminology. So we must really be on our guard to make sure that we are not taken in by other people who might look legit on on the surface but are actually false teachers. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel, from the one you accepted. You put up with it easily enough. Paul warns about people coming into churches and bringing false teachings that are actually from Satan himself. And he says this a little bit further on in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. For such people are false prophets, sorry, that they're false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Satan masquerades as an angel of light and he uses people to teach things that are false in order to lead people astray. When later writing to Timothy, who was part of this team in Acts 16, Paul says this, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Deceiving spirits and demons will teach things that are contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ and will cause them to wander away from the truth and abandon it. And we see this right throughout church history and it's going on all the time, even now. People who are often respected figures in the life of the church begin teaching what at first glance seems plausible and genuine, but over time it drifts further and further away from the true gospel, from the the truth of the Bible. And you know, there are all sorts of stuff out there, all sorts of Christian websites, books, podcasts, even churches that claim to be Christian. But just because it has Christian on the label does not mean it is authentic and true. 
There are all sorts of things that are teaching things that are contrary to the Bible. So when you look at a website, don't assume that it's true. Don't assume that a book is good. Don't assume that a, a CD or a podcast. Check it out. Investigate who's behind it, what's going on, because not everything that calls itself Christian is Christian. And, you know, there's great pressure to be tolerant and gracious to all that calls itself Christian. But the Bible actually teaches the very opposite when it comes to false teaching. When we can identify teaching as being contrary to the Bible, deceptive and demonic in origin, we need to name it for what it is and have nothing to do with it. So what's the solution to this? Well, we need to study the Bible so that we know the truth and then we can identify what is false. We don't just spend our lives studying what's false. That's a fruitless, dead-end game. What we need to do is study the truth because when we know the truth, then we'll spot what's false. When we know the truth of the Bible and something false comes along, we'll say, hang on, that doesn't quite sit right. What I'm hearing from this preacher, reading in this book, singing in this song, it doesn't quite sit right because I know the truth. So the way that we'll spot false teaching is by studying the truth. And the more that we study the Bible and get to know the truth, the more we'll be able to spot false teaching. As Paul and his team attempted to preach the gospel in Philippi and, and beyond, they, they met with all sorts of opposition. Some of it was uh, subtle, some of it was very direct. That's because the gospel is the means by which people are saved from an eternity in hell, receive eternal life, and go to be with Jesus forever. And Satan doesn't want that. Lydia had accepted the truth of the gospel. And this girl needed to be set free. This slave girl needed to be set free and accept the truth of the gospel. And the jailer needed to accept the truth. And he needed to surrender to Jesus too. And the gospel transformed their lives. And it's transformed many of our lives here today, hasn't it? So let's be people that, that keep on being committed to spreading that good news of the gospel because we know that it is everybody's greatest need. And let's ensure that we protect the truth and reject any attempts to twist the truth of the gospel. And let's make sure that we're spreading the true gospel and not a defective gospel or a twisted gospel. We're going to listen uh, to a song uh, just, just to close the service. And this is, we're going to close within a minute. I'm just going to pray, but we're going to watch this to close with. If you do need to shoot off, that's fine. But please just sit and listen just for a few moments. I know we're over time, but just sit and listen. Great song. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all that along. We're going to watch this in a minute, listen to it, but I'm just going to pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel, for the good news about Jesus. Thank you that it's transformed so many of our lives here today. Help us to be people that continue to spread this good news to others. We pray for all those in our lives that we know uh, don't know you. May they come to faith in you. Help us to be people that uh, teach the, the true gospel. Help us to know the truth so that we can stick to the truth and keep spreading the true gospel. We thank you for the life transforming power of the good news about Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you have transformed our lives. We worship you this morning. We thank you for what you've done in our lives. We praise you together and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.